Hello, and welcome to the New Federalist Podcast. My name is Brendan Rummel, but for this project, I am going by Publius. So it's been a little over a week since I last posted an episode, and I had taken a mini vacation back to Arizona and polishing up what I think is going to be a pretty engaging and revealing conversation about the Democratic Party. But that will be in a little while. Um, Still have quite a bit of content to get through before that. But this episode is going to pick up where we left off last time um, discussing neoliberalism as it has shaped our American society for the worse. Specifically, last time we were talking about Amazon and their contemporaries' role in our new feudalist economic structure that we're currently experiencing. We had left off in the middle of talking about what the true livable wage is, according to the Consumer Pricing Index. Amazon has been lauded as this progressive company for having wages at $15 an hour since 2018. But um, I would argue that Bezos and company are highly aware of what the livable wage is now being around $17 an hour. But I think he is, like I said, hyper aware and knows that the minimum wage can't stay flatlined for 30 years without moving at some point. So he's preemptively curtailing wages at 15. When actually talking to base level Amazon employees, not just the higher up managers, I'm going on a a daily uh, podcast episode that had run a little while ago, but the conditions that most employees experienced were compared to slavery, you know, by black workers, but they were discussing how little control they actually had over their conditions. Amazon has become so fiercely anti-union and like this isn't exclusive to them, but they have hired the Pinkerton agency to go undercover, infiltrate their employees and make sure that there are no interest groups that pop up that could potentially challenge, you know, the structure. They have huge surveillance programs of their employees along with this. They track their workers every move not just for the production purposes of dinging people when they have off-task time. It also goes so far as to track race and activism metrics, like keeping a profile of the employee's likelihood to have some sort of unionization movement. And in this way, they can ensure that there is no organization that can get off the ground by preemptively stopping it. It was a miracle that the Bessemer warehouse even got to the point of having a vote. I'm sure most listeners know, but I just want to reiterate that unions are essential to a free and fair market. They provide a way for workers to have a say in their conditions and some influence in the compensation for the labor that they provide. But due to the systematic way that we've been misled and governed in brutal capitalism, and especially with neoliberals' influence, only 10% or less of workers are unionized in the United States now. This means that millions of people, the majority of our labor, and pretty much every low-skill employee, low-skill, have no power in their workplace. This is horrible because there's no collective bargaining. Many states have at-will employment laws and Managers can just fire you 
seemingly out of nowhere. When this happens, there's usually shoddy reasons at best. Think about how many people have been fired during the pandemic because they were afraid of contracting a virus or uh, I'm going to use Hobby Lobby as an example. They have a case where they fired a pregnant worker because once she got pregnant, the implication is that she can't do as much work. And now we have Amazon proposing corporate towns in the United States, and they've already done this in Mexico and other areas, I think in Latin America. They want to turn those, you know, 40, probably more like 70, 80 hour work weeks in a corporate town. They want to turn that into complete reliance on the company, even for housing and food. Just listen to the song 16 Tons and you'll know how horrible company stores are, you know? But fortunately, there is some realization about this. And we've seen some really fantastic shows of resolve lately. There's strikes happening all over. You know, nurses, movie makers, uh, bakers, teachers. In Portland, they have a really great strike going against Nabisco and Mandala's. I think that's how you pronounce that company's name. But the reason for bringing up Amazon isn't to make them seem like they're the only bad guy. They are, quote unquote, a progressive company for America, right? So there are dozens and dozens of corporations that do the exact same and much worse. I want to give the Waltons as an example. They're the richest family in America. In many ways, Walmart is the OG Amazon, the OG Bezos. They make billions of dollars a year, but their retailer, the Walmart retailer, has the highest rate of staff on welfare out of any business in the country. So let that sink in for a second. All right, I have about 20 pages left of notes, but we're going to try to get through this uh, and let's not see if we condense it a little bit as we go. I want to continue this discussion with pointing out that major corporations thrived during the pandemic. They saw virtually across the board 75 to 100% increases in their profits, and they did not raise wages. Most of them did the bare minimum of protections for their workers as well uh, and didn't act until they were forced to. Even companies that view themselves as fighting for the best working conditions aren't actually doing that. They're fighting for the most individual profit possible within a country whose government encourages stepping on the backs of others by willful oversight. We have elevated corporations beyond regulation. We see Amazon and other multi-billion dollar companies flaunt their avoidance of taxes since they know the government won't even lift a finger to stop them. Think about the amount of jobs that Amazon provides to California or Oregon. And were the state to go after them, they could just say, well, we will not have any base of operations here. The individuals who run our country as well are much too tied in with the interests of big business and its lobbies that align with their own agendas to ever meaningfully place regulations on corporations. Think about, well, I guess we haven't had this discussion yet, but insider trading and the fact that the board of the Federal Reserve is basically just a hand-picked Wall Street emissary that they send to the president, there are a lot of other anti-competitive behaviors that reinforce a new feudalist structure that all stem from neoliberal deregulation. Uh, and one of these that is particularly harmful 
our merger deals, an example of the companies that most people would recognize would be AT&T or Facebook, in which they use their consumers as a very thin veil to obscure true intentions of monopolization. The version of capitalism that the United States has is just innovating ways to fuck people over like this and exploit the most profit for the most collateral damage in the sense of having minimum safety standards and completely lacking any care of the damage that their platform does, Facebook being a great example of this. Another thing that multi-billion dollar corporations like to do is create shell corporations, which they use for speculative purchases or an investment that they have a feeling could blow up in their face, like that they know will be a bad PR nightmare if it goes south. A lot of drilling companies use this strategy for exploratory sites that have ended up in disaster. And a lot of financial entities take the shell corporation route as well if they need to avoid looking like a monopoly or if their secondary business is less than savory. In the government's eyes, if a corporation goes through a restructuring like this and maintains the same investors and management, the previous iteration of the company won't be liable for any damages, even if the same company, the same people are profiting. A perfect example of this would be, well, in tandem with our bankruptcy laws, Purdue Pharma being allowed to escape any accountability by declaring bankruptcy and settling a deal in which they don't have to be held accountable for any of the deaths that their drug caused and knowingly caused, which we will discuss a little later. Businesses will also merge with other multi-billion dollar corporations to pool their resources and provide cheaper service to customers, uh, which often happens. But at the same time, a lot of hidden fees and fine print addendums pop up that end up making them more money because they charge people at every opportunity. Take into consideration the mini bag fees for airlines, uh, the service fees for cable and cell phone providers, or the microtransactions that video games implement now. And speaking of video game publishers, that is another example of a pseudo shell court kind of monopoly where you have someone like Activision who buys up small studios or Bethesda or any, they will buy a small studio and take it over as theirs. So all of the profits are being funneled to the top. The reason that they can get away with this is because the, there aren't many other options for booking a flight for an internet service provider, or even down to waste management usually. The reason that companies also implement all of these shady mergers and ticky-tack kind of fees is that they're able to keep huge margins while maintaining commodity prices in line with the CPI. So on the surface, they're making services as accessible as possible, you know, by keeping them as cheap and in line with the consumer pricing index as possible. But at the same time, behind the scenes, there are all these hidden costs that you can't really avoid. And this is how, similarly to taxes, inflation always gets passed on to the consumer. We have no control over how consumers are being gouged for basic services. 
the upper class and their corporations maintain this very fine line of not wanting wages to go too high because that would mean less for them, obviously, but also increased autonomy for the lower classes means they could decide they don't want to work as much. So the entire goal of our political system as it serves corporations and big money is to maintain the status quo that is best for corporation, the vehicles of upper-class wealth. Hence why there are extreme deregulations and crippled labor laws. The neoliberalism just turned into trickle-down economics. And this is one of the major components to American capitalist culture that we need to rethink. Centering our economic thought around social growth and keeping in mind that it is the workers who are providing all of the labor to actually generate wealth for those at the top. This all ties back in with the first episode about changing the way we view growth. And we can infinitely grow in compassion and prosperity, but we can only finitely grow economically on paper with the resources and technology available. And if we continue trying to do so, we're going to destroy the planet in our pursuit. We need to make sure that the average person sees a portion of that success so that they can improve their lives while at the same time scaling industry to allow recovery for our environment and reverse the course of destruction that we are on. Our mindset right now is very plutocratic in terms of our American capitalist culture. We believe that the people at the top have some entitlement to be there so that so all the profit just should be channeled to them. This is because they have some superior quality which is an extension of rugged individualism within our savage capitalism that we use to make up this quality of mythos, uh, some fantastical work ethic or genius to hide the fact that underlying this surface level greatness, the individual has no outstanding merit for that position usually because of nepotism or they have manipulated and exploited every avenue possible to get to where they're at. Think of our worshiping someone like Elon Musk as this great space genius when in reality, he is the result of some of the highest privilege on earth. His parents owned uh, an emerald mine in South Africa and it was perhaps stolen by his dad uh, Errol Musk, but that's a story for another time, unfortunately. Similar to the Bezos, the Gates, all of these big names that we see, he was Elon was coddled along. All of his startups were funded. He was given tens of thousands of dollars to keep his businesses afloat. All that Musk has done is sociopathically take advantage of as many people possible with that donated wealth that he's been given in order to achieve the status of battling for richest person on earth with Jeff Bezos. But due to this thought in our society that these people are deserving, we let the ultra wealthy hoard these outlandish sums of money and keep it within their family for generations, perpetuating their security, their luxury, their privilege, while they sit back and watch average people desperately work their asses off for the next meal. Think about how life-changing another $1,000 per month would be for most of the country. To the average person, that means nearly a month of rent, two months of groceries, or some back-to-school supplies for their kids. 
But to these billionaires who control our lives, a thousand dollars isn't even worth their time to pick up off the ground. They're making millions of dollars a day, but they don't even allow a minimum wage above $7 and 25 cents an hour. So I know this is sounding like I am taking a pure socialist mindset. I don't think that socialism will ever as a brand work within the American structure that we have. That is why I believe social capitalism is what we focus on in terms of building up our social welfare and our societal values so that we can provide a prosperous future without sacrificing our economic growth. There is no doubt that somebody who creates a highly successful company deserves a bigger slice of the pie due to the initiative and ability to set up its infrastructure. But they generally only do this intensive labor at the beginning, and then they begin delegating tasks once they have enough capital. The founder and the board of a company shouldn't have so much pie that those who continue to generate wealth for them are left with measly crumbs. If a company like Amazon, Tesla, or any big-time retailer really did care about working conditions, they would let their laborers address these specific workplace deficiencies. Instead, they should claim that workers should be happy with what they're getting paid, even if they can't meet their basic needs. Take the few benefits, if any, and shut up and do their job. Not to mention the fact that the barriers to housing and inflationary costs in general for education basic needs are making it so that the generations following the baby boomers are hardly able to own their own house, let alone save up generational wealth. I understand this drive to ensure profits and install a strict system that keeps employees within this narrow lane to increase productivity. This is the aim of a capitalist corporation, maximize profits by cutting out the excess fat and innovating better production methods. Why then should we rely on a company like Amazon to be the lifeline for its workers when the primary objective is to cut as many costs in order to make its shareholders money? Further, if we do see corporate responsibility to include all aspects of labor are fair beyond a livable wage, why do we not allow employees to have some voice or other democratization where the employees who are providing the wealth and labor see the reality of policy benefiting. This is where the argument for social capitalism comes in because humans being selfish and this being a society dominated by individualistic thought, the heads of corporations are naturally going to choose to funnel profits to the top and invest in themselves, their other ventures, uh, rather than their company and the workers who made them rich. The American government is not of the people and for the people. Currently, it only stands for ensuring wealthy patrons maximize personal gain. Guilt only kicks in if you care, and those at the top do not care about us one bit. So the reason that I say I don't believe socialism will work in America is because we have this hierarchical structure far too ingrained in our minds of the boss, the employees, the managers, and the corporation as a whole. And just rugged individualism in general has been so influential on our ethos. But if we are able to have a government that provides a baseline of health and ensures that there are regulations and standards companies must meet, then it will be possible to achieve some form of 
measures social progress because once people have their monetary needs and thus basic needs of shelter and food and water secured, they are free to spend time engaging with the community, thinking about their impact in the world and pursuing more of a purpose in life. Think about has those hierarchy of needs in this sense. So I would like to wrap up this episode with an analysis of our for-profit education system, how it not only perpetuates our new feudalist status quo, but also how it has completely murdered the prospects of entrepreneurialism and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And I'm specifically going to use architecture uh, as a case study to examine the markets as a whole. Younger generations don't have the ability to follow the linear model of going to school for a few, for a few years, getting a decent paying job, starting a family, uh, then saving to buy a house, you know, the white picket fence type of American dream. The barriers they face to living independently have paradoxically increased despite the vast wealth our nation has gained from the mid 20th century onward. But with inflation and the increasing costs to pay for living expenses, people are having a harder time thinking about keeping food on the table, let alone a family. The baby boomers and other generations who secured their financial security from the New Deal welfare programs then turned around and cut off the ability of younger or marginalized communities to build up that same wealth by removing any programs that could have helped provide resources for younger generations uh, because they needed to be, quote, personally responsible. So where I will take this conversation soon, and I'm sure most of you have some sense of, is that personal responsibility rhetoric has become a placeholder for Jim Crow and the type of segregation that outwardly held people of color back from benefiting uh, with the New Deal. Housing purchases are at an all-time low among the millennial generation, and due to financial insecurity and a lack of savings, people are refusing to start family, and we've seen the birth rate rapidly decline. Single-family dwellings are disappearing among younger generations that would have been starting a family at this age 40 years ago. Nearly everyone is relying on roommates or partnerships to like grind through school or try to save up. Following an increase in barriers to higher paying jobs due to housing insecurities, educational access, and a sheer volume of candidates in the market, many people in their 20s and 30s are beginning to feel stuck. This tremendous stagnation in younger people has had the effect of killing entrepreneurialism uh, since increased deregulation and inequity within the markets has erected significant barriers to the majority of our population wishing to pursue their own capitalistic endeavors. In our deregulated ecosystem, any small business fish is just acting as a corporate shark's food, whether it be the mergers we've talked about or the anti-competitive behaviors like cornering off a market. Think Amazon in this sense. People are more risk-averse when they have no cushion to fall back on. And in 2014, small business startups were at a 40-year low. They have only declined since and went into an absolute death spiral during COVID. And we don't even know the full damage that the pandemic has inflicted on small businesses yet. Regardless, it's very clear that corporate entities prospered off the crisis while smaller businesses were forced to close their doors en masse. The upper class nearly doubled their wealth during the pandemic while small businesses and individuals were suffering and forced to throw money into the maws of these billionaires for survival. I think it was something like four trillion was gained by the upper 10% or upper 1%, excuse me, during the pandemic. 
and the working class bled out about 3.7, 3.8 trillion. Think about where that bleed out went. Architecture is a fantastic reflection of the wider entrepreneurial market, and it acts as a sort of barometer for the economy overall. This profession is often one of the first to be affected by a downturn, since it has so many connections to other industries. In many ways, architecture is reflective of the American dream. Smaller firms can build their reputation from the ground up, and if their work is of high enough quality, they can achieve huge success. Therefore, it has historically been a lot of independent firms starting up and competing within the market to prove their ability. 77.3% of firms have nine or or fewer employees, and 99.6% of the wider industry still has fewer than 50. However, architecture is intimately tied with real estate, obviously, and during a backslide in property values, such as during the Great Recession, this field is one of the first to feel the impacts, and it ends up being hit harder than most sectors. Since 2008, there has been a drastic shift towards corporate domination as small firms were forced to close or engage in mergers with larger competition in order to survive as private real estate, small architects' bread and butter, ground to a halt during the Great Recession, and foreclosures began to skyrocket. Therefore, since the crash, over half of any new startups have failed within their first five years. Nearly three quarters of small business architect startups have been gone by 10 years. Further, small business now only represents 20% of the total architects employed and a meager 15.4% of the profits. This isn't even taking into account the effects of COVID-19 yet and impending commercial real estate plummet that is soon to follow. In interviews with small firms that had managed to survive the recession, the overwhelming consensus was that a deregulated market has allowed for corporate interests with big money to dominate. And thus, all roads lead back to Wall Street, right? And I also want to note that the spread of small businesses in architecture is still high. So that 99.6% of the wider industry only having fewer than 50 employees is accurate. However, that is not in terms of market share. That is just the number of businesses in the market. So in reality, those 99.6% of firms roughly are only accounting for 20% of the, or excuse me, 15.4% of the profit. And 20% of the total workforce. As massive financial entities like BlackRock, Blackstone, now Zillow, have begun to gobble up real estate and contract out with local architecture firms and has been harder to collect payment because these types of entities are much tighter with their cash, especially now during the pandemic. And someone like Zillow is swooping in with cash, tens of thousands over asking price so that they can flip the house for even more value, artificially pumping the market. So as you can imagine, prior to COVID-19, small architecture firms were already being forced into these narrow markets and essentially banking for themselves due to the restructuring uh, of corporate domination. And on top of doing work before getting paid and having to turn into loan sharks, some small firms have also experienced heavy devaluation for their work despite inflation. Oftentimes, they're forced to incur many of their own expenses. And if they do get paid for their work, they aren't even breaking even because builders have begun cutting all unnecessary costs And unfortunately, most contractors see design as less important than construction. Now, since the pandemic has again massacred the commercial real estate market, 
there have been very few new projects on that front. And the corporate firms that were taking up huge market shares mainly in the commercial sector have now been forced into smaller local housing markets that the smaller businesses rely on. And now they're able to outbid local startups because their coffers have collateral cash. They can put towards projects that the clients don't have to cover. And so they're able to come in much lower for asking price. And this is appealing, of course, to any entity that wants to maximize profit, but it is devastating for independent small firms. The chain reaction caused by Wall Street greed always affects small business. And as they are boxed out of their own markets by bigger corporate competitors uh, that can afford to lose money in order to make more, think about Amazon in this sense as well. That is literally a strategy. Be able to bleed more cash than your opponent for customer convenience. The hope of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is dead. And to even reach an opportunity of entrepreneurial success, you're going to have to have education, the money to fund it, back and keep you supported through your education. And you're going to need to create a consistent profit stream with huge monopolies competing against you. On top of this, all commodities have skyrocketed in price from inflation. And big business, of course, is able to keep up as everyone else drowns in the wake of their mega yacht. With the educational and economic boom in the 50s, remember, for mostly white middle-class families, it was possible to support yourself through school by working to pay for tuition and living expenses. For example, my dad started a small architecture firm in Tucson during the 90s after he obtained a degree from the U of A a decade prior, working construction to pay his way through school. Someone like him could no longer graduate high school, get a job in the industry they have an interest in, then pay their way through college while incurring little to no debt. That is completely out of bounds of possibility now. The average cost of tuition in the U.S. has more than tripled in the last 20 years, and housing has only gotten harder to afford, with the average student now spending upwards of $35,700 per year for tuition and living expenses. The total price of a four-year degree from public schools, mind you, for an average in-state student is about 103 grand, with an out-of-state student looking to spend nearly $175,000 on average. Emphasis on the average. This isn't even taking into account private institutions, which are incomprehensibly more expensive. To put this in perspective, the tuition alone for private schools has risen from what average modern-day public institution is, uh, just over $10,000 a year to nearly $40,000 within 25 years. Adjusted for inflation, the total cost of a four-year public degree in the 70s was $42,200. Again, this is after the cost has been adjusted for 2021 currency rates, and it takes into account living expenses. The argument that modern schools are only charging these insane tuition rates to keep up with inflation is a false narrative. Presidents and administrative staff simply want more money. In the 70s, the cost of tuition was $243, $2,708 adjusted per, term, per year, and has since grown over 360% to be around $9,500 per year. The income per capita for the middle class during the same time has all but flatlined, even dipped a little bit <laughs> during the Great Recession. In the 60s, our federal minimum wage <coughs> adjusted was $7.91. 
This means that from 1989 until now, not only has the cost of college increased eight times faster than wages, but the pay we receive for our labor is falling sharply. As a result of being severely underpaid, 56% of students face housing insecurity every year, nearly half reported having trouble regularly paying for food. Of students who can afford regular meals, half of them still said they couldn't afford balanced nutrition. And schools that had never had issues of food insecurity before are now needing to hire nutritional counselors just to help students find meals that they can't afford. Even more alarming is 30% of college students live below the poverty line, disproportionately students of color, with no prospects of improving circumstances after they graduate due to the crushing debt of student loans and a job market that aims to keep as many in wage slavery to be possible. Also, apologies, you could hear my cat in the background there. The dream of education that many have been sold with student loans was a lie, unsurprisingly given America's track record, and has only served to solidify our reliance on the upper class to graciously dip, drip a little bit into our pockets. From the very beginning, it wasn't a question of providing equal access for students. It was which students should be provided for it in a for-profit, white supremacist-influenced education system. Government and loan institutions have no regard for the student beyond getting their money, could gladly push tens of thousands of dollars worth of loans onto 18-year-olds who are deemed so irresponsible they can't rent a car. The average college attendee has over $37,000 in student loan debt, and 53% of millennials haven't been able to purchase a home because their debt either disqualified them or made them unable to afford a mortgage. Naturally, we can see these results uh, disproportionately targeting people of color as nearly half of black students owed 12% more in student loan debt than their counterparts did four years post-grad. Additionally, nearly a third of African-American college graduates default on their loans within 12 years due to rates that were too high. This is most likely linked to the subprime loan racket that Wall Street has had going on since the 90s, which we will get to when we discuss um, the Federal Reserve in the Great Recession. Even Al Lord, who, if you don't know, is one of the premier demagogues for profiting off of people's desperation to get an education in the form of Sally May, now said that he was glad he saved up for his grandkids' education and doesn't understand how anyone making fifty dollars or $60,000 a year could afford to buy a college education. Yeah, Al, no shit. <laughs> You and your Wall Street buddies have entirely destroyed our financial system, creating an environment that holds anyone outside the upper class in permanent servitude for corporate crumbs. I also want to note that during the explosion in this supposed need to go to college, our system is clearly only preparing people for nine to five labor in the sense that there is a significant rise in students pursuing marketing and administrative communication degrees And the students that don't um, most often end up in those fields anyways. Only 27% of college graduates work in a field related to their major. So if you've spent four years studying something that you're passionate about, think how soul-crushing it is to realize that the only way you can support yourself or make a decent wage is submitting yourself to corporate interest. Modern life in America is one vicious cycle in which we tell our kids that their worth is tied to a degree they must get, ignoring any passion and desire that young people may have outside of a linear path to wage slavery. 
It is no wonder that we are feeling increasingly lonely, angry, and at odds with our fellow citizens as we are coerced into participating in an extremely unfair system, burdened with debt and a bleak future where we're subservient to corporate interest for years until we get to retire, if that day ever comes. For generations post-millennial, that will most likely never come if we don't change the way that the status quo is. The American dream is dangled above our heads like a carrot that keeps us going, thinking that one day we will reach it as the entities that profit off our exertion on that treadmill of capitalist pursuit simultaneously structure the system so that the harder we work, the less likely they are to give us compensation over time. People are only able to think about their next paycheck, let alone be a participant in politics, focus on personal relationships, or find some kind of fulfillment. At this point, it doesn't really matter how much debt we outright relieve because the cycle is just going to start all over again for the next generation. We need to restructure the way that education is viewed in our society and shift it away, shift away from it being a privilege to pay for, instead making it a recognized right that everyone should pursue. This will be a further discussion for later work, but the basic argument that I want my audience to understand about our education system is that similar to all aspects of American life, our establishment's greed has destroyed the institution of college and pushed the cost of an American dream yet again onto the people, putting the responsibility for their success onto themselves. If people can't graduate and find a job that pays off their debt, they just chose the wrong career. This argument is similarly used when discussing the wage disparities between men, women, and people of color. Um, women just don't choose the higher paying professions, so it's their fault that men make more because they don't want to break into male-dominated fields like coding. And to this argument, I would say, think about what we see at companies like Activision Blizzard, where a traditionally male-dominated field is misogynistic beyond belief. Why would a woman want to subject themselves to <laughs> humiliation and, like, constant harassment for a higher a little bit of a higher paycheck so that is the end of our discussion for this episode um next time we will be talking about the disproportionate impacts of all of these policies that maintain a specific status quo uh on people of color and how the status quo of white supremacy and segregation has been maintained through our savage capitalism and our current economic structures. Thank you for listening.